Welcome to episode 123 of Podcateers. In this episode, we welcome back the awesome Cat Cressida. We hung out at Catal in downtown Disney Anaheim, and Cat gave us a look into some of the challenges faced when being a voiceover artist, the type of development she's undergone throughout her career, including how she felt and prepared when she found out that she was going to be the newest character in the Haunted Mansion since it opened. She even tells us a cool story about her time as an intern for Walt Disney Imagineering and gives us an example of some of the troubles faced when taking a developed attraction overseas. And finally, she gives some really valuable advice on what you can do to develop yourself if you are interested in doing voiceover work. Make sure to follow Kat on social media. She's at Kat Cressida on Twitter and Instagram. You can also find her on Facebook. We'll make sure to add all those links to the blog post for the episode, which is going to be over at podcateers.com slash 123. And make sure to stop by the blog and check out a clip of Dexter trying to help Dee Dee with her singing. It's an awesome clip. If Gum could do that, ah, the miracles. Before we jump into the episode, I want to remind you guys that support for Podcateers is provided by listeners like you. I want to thank our fairy godparents for their continued support via Patreon this month. And if you would like to be a fairy godparent to the podcast and help us out with a monthly, weekly, or even one-time contribution, you can do so for as little as $1, which goes a really long way in helping to keep the podcast running. So for more information, just head over to podcateers.com and click on the Patreon logo or go to patreon.com slash podcateers. If you're looking for us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Snapchat, just search for Podcateers. We're also on YouTube. Make sure to check out some of our videos and hit that subscribe button. As always, thank you all so very much for listening. A huge thanks to Kat Cressida for hanging out and chatting with us again. Here we go with episode 123 of Podcateers. This is our podcast. It's about three guys that love Disney, technology, art, and food. This is Podcateers. We're officially going to kick this off and say that we are sitting here with the Black Widow Bride herself. Awesome Cat Cressida. Yes. Welcome. soundtrack. Yeah, welcome back. How are you? I'm really good. Nice to have you back, Kat. And, and forgive me, we're we, we're mid snacking right now, y'all. So we're grabbing on some awesome Catel food. We are. We have some awesome hummus and this amazing pretzel that Kat got. Some calamari, some buffalo wings, and we basically have the whole appetizer menu. <laughs> <laughs> And I think Javier ordered more, and I think more is coming. <laughs> more calamari. So, so uh, as we're grubbing on this cap, yes, we're eventually going to get to talking about Constance, which Uh-oh. is what we know about and what we love you for. But is that all you love me for? Oh, no, we love we you love for you so much you're more. Awesome, <laughs> really, because you're awesome. One of the cool things about voiceover, and different from on camera, is that there's all these different. You know, um, fan, you know, fan groups. People who love video games, people who love sports, people who are all about the ESPN, people who are all about the Disney, people who are all about Cartoon Network, and it's really fascinating because oftentimes one group could care less about all the other credits. I did something for Dexter's Laboratory a couple of months ago. It was like a special for Fox, and none of them had any clue about any of my Disney credits, and they could care less. Really? really? Yeah. In fact, they were shocked to hear, you know, they were like, oh, you do stuff for Disney? 
was like, wow. you know, and then the How ESPN people, yeah, when I do stuff for the NFL draft or ESPN, they're like, oh, what, you do Disney and video games? That's so weird. I thought you are sports. So... Wow, how about it's really that? Quite separated That's out. intense. It's funny because I almost feel like because we're in these little clusters of people that like these different types of things, uh, when you go to something like Comic-Con, that's where kind of the mesh happens between all the groups because there's a lot of crossover. Not sports. Definitely not sports. <laughs> Definitely not sports. <laughs> You're correct there. But it's funny because I knew about you working on Dexter's Laboratory before I even knew that you worked on the Haunted Mansion. And it wasn't, it was when I found out that you worked on the Haunted Mansion where my mind was blown. And Your mind was blown? It was blown. <laughs> it was blown. Well, the like thing in was, those commercials, where do those commercials Where you just hear like yeah. a poof, it's the like, The purple poof. Yeah. <laughs> when I got into Disney history, I started learning how the parts were built and who was behind it and all the people that started to come together to provide voices and stuff like that. Uh, the first one that I found out about was Paul Fries because of the Haunted Mansion. That was kind of my conduit into the Disney community, the mansion itself. And that's where I found out about you. And I found out about you because I listened to Nuptial Doom. Oh, really? It I was. didn't know that that was how we first sort of, okay. Yeah, so Nuptial Doom was my first introduction to some of the work that you did, and that's how I found out that you were the voice of Constance. Okay. And it was right about the time, I believe, that Disney was uh, really going through the process of updating the, the mansion itself with the bride and kind of giving her the story that exists now, because she's always existed in these different iterations in the mansion. There's been approximately six versions of the bride, but she didn't really have a name uh, throughout the entire history of the bride being in the attic. She always was more of a victim versus what Constance became, That's true. the Black Widow Bride. So tell us a little bit about the prep work, because I know you weren't given a lot. You know, it was a, it was a secret project. Right. How was it prepping for something you didn't know was going to happen? Um, well, that's <laughs> that's the fine line we often we often walk in terms of voiceover because we sign NDAs and oftentimes they don't want us to necessarily know what we're auditioning because of course the internet and social media being as prevalent as it is they don't want things to leak you know before it uh, do I have to speak up or are we good oh we should be okay okay it happens quite frequently it's not unusual to have to prep for something or audition something and not really know what you're auditioning for. They'll give you just enough context um, so that they can get what they feel they need from the audition. But for example, we read on a, a round of auditions. We've been reading on a round of auditions now for about three months. It keeps coming around the same script. And it's just a story. It's literally a story uh, of a girl telling a tale about when her parents discovered she was accidentally sneaking alcohol from the cupboard. And it's just a paragraph long, and they ask for different dialects, you know, Irish, Southern, et cetera, et cetera. It's so clear that this copy has nothing to do, it's for a video game. Oh. So they don't, they literally don't want anybody to have any clue what we're reading on, what we're reading for, what we're going to be booking. And that happens a lot. You know, you just sort of, on good faith, try and build some sort of a character or go with what they, they give you. I personally feel, and of course, I don't know what it takes to build a video game, but if you're really looking for the right voice for something, you know, obviously the more information they give an actor, right. the more they're probably going to get back. And maybe the reason this one has gone several rounds is because they're looking for something, but they're not specifically saying what those attributes, 
personality traits are that they're looking for. That makes a lot of sense because when you think about uh, script writers and they're developing a story, a lot of them write these scripts with a particular actor or actress in mind for the particular part that they're doing. Uh, it would make sense that they would want to do the same for voice acting because, you know, if, especially if you know the credits, like you said, the dialects that somebody can, can speak in, it's easier to pick and choose than having to do an entire blanket audition. Am I... Is that kind of how it goes? Or well, in voiceover, they usually don't write with a specific voiceover person in mind. Um, okay. I mean, unless we're talking about like a Disney animated feature where, of course, they're sort of modeling the character with attributes of famous personality traits of, of actors. But um, but specifically for video games, especially because there's so many parts that a video game will have, you know, there's so many roles. Um, so some companies are very good about giving you specifics and giving you an idea, and you kind of, you know, you go, oh, I think this is a Batman project, you know, just from some of the language, and, you know, I mean, the minute you say Gotham, of course, it's game over, you know what, but there are so many Batman games in various stages of development, development and production, you don't know which one it's going to be. Right. Same with Avengers, same with uh, um, any, any number of Disney Princess projects, you know. It could be a licensee, it could be Telltale Games, you know, doing something where they've, they've licensed the, and they're working in partnership with Disney, and it's not Disney, but it's a Disney property, or it could directly be for Disney, or it could, you know, you just don't know. Very cool. So, yeah. So to, so to answer your question, it's not unusual to read for something and have no idea you were asking what was that like, and so I guess... I was answering towards the bride. It wasn't so unusual to be told, "Hey, you're going to show up for this audition." They're not, you know, they'll tell you something when you get there, but they're not going to release too much beforehand. I don't know if this has been your experience, but if they release an iteration of, let's say, like Phantom Manor to the Haunted Mansion, uh, do they give you a little more information at that point, and, and or is it still part of that NDA process where you still don't know a lot about the project? So you know a little bit more how to gear what you're what you're trying to portray as the character. Well, Imagineering traditionally doesn't tell you anything. So you, the entire process, you basically don't know what you're doing. It's always right. Yeah, I mean, they may say it's for a park in Hong Kong, or it's for Disney, you know, Disneyland oh, Paris, okay. or it's for Disneyland. I mean, I was told it's for a classic Disney attraction. That's what I was told. Oh. Um, and, but I, you know, me being the snob and sort of the Disney historian, you know, legacy human being, I like to think that I am. When you say Disney classic attraction, there's people who consider, you know, newer attractions to be classic. Um, Star Tours, you know, some people, you know, especially someone if they're 16, they would call that a classic. Right. But to me, coming from sort of the, the point of view of Walt's legacy in the 50s and the 60s, the only thing you're really going to call a classic is, you know, Pirates of the Caribbean, right. maybe Small World, um, Dumbo, Bear Country Jamboree, you know, the, to me those are classic attractions that really, and Tiki Room, yeah, yeah, things that really embody the original engineering, the original audio animatronics, all that technology, you know, Jungle Cruise would be classic attraction right Indiana Jones which I love I don't think yet you could really call a classic Disney attraction for two reasons one it's you know was built in the 90s and the second reason is Walt had nothing to do with it and the third reason going on is that it's not 
Disney. <laughs> right. It's a great attraction. Right. But um, when I think of a classic Disneyland attraction, I tend to go towards something that, you know, Disney came up with that's right. their property. I agree. I think that's the general rule that, and see, that's, I guess, if, if people are really nitpicking, that's where the mansion gets into that blurry zone because Walt helped develop it but didn't see it, unfortunately, all the way through. But I agree that all of those opening day attractions are what I consider classic or anything that transferred <coughs> from the World's Fair into the yeah. park. Like you said, it's a small world, for yeah. instance. So, yeah, all the other ones... They are iterations of classic attractions, but not considered classic. Absolutely. So I, I think it's interesting that you bring that up too, because the mansion, first of all, it's it's one of the few. Correct me if I'm wrong, but it's one of the few attractions that um, has managed to translate in some way, shape, or form to other countries, to other parks outside of the United yes. States, and um, probably the only classic attraction. I mean, unless I'm wrong, are there teacups and? Maybe there are. In, in the other parks, are, there are some are versions okay. of them. And the mansion has... It's really one of the more complex form, ones. Yeah, it has become com uh, complex because in certain cultures, they can't directly oh, yeah. take what we have here as the mansion oh, and I take know. it over. One um, of my favorites... I guess I got to share this. This just came up. Can yeah. I share this? No, of course. Let me interrupt you. But one of my favorite stories is... And I forgot about this, actually. It's amazing how as you as you gear up and start gaining more experience, your brain can only remind you and present you of certain facts right. <laughs> along the way as you get busier and more crammed with information. I'm sure anybody over 35 listening to this is going, oh, yeah. But... <laughs> I did, I did an internship for Imagineering for a summer. Really? Yes. Right when I was uh, um, graduating from college and prepping, because I had already accepted, I was lucky enough to get into the training program of one of the top agencies in town, so I was waiting to start my real job, <laughs> you know, making all the 300 bucks a week or whatever I was making. But um, during the summer, I served an internship with... Um, W, with WDI and it was particularly it was called the Blue Sky Department part of it which cool. yeah so cool and at the time they were developing uh, Disneyland Paris you know um, Euro, what was called Euro Disney, Euro Disney at the time Disney, yeah. yeah and I specifically spent an entire two days just dealing with the fact that someone threw on my desk that because they were going to do a Pirates attraction and yet, how do we translate Pirates of the Caribbean to European sensibilities right. where it would be relevant, where they would understand it, where it would be... And it, it was mind-blowing to realize for the first time ever that what we take for granted as being pop culture or seen with a certain lens mm -hmm. was completely 180 in other cultures. So Pirates... And the American culture, as it's developed, particularly with Halloween and school plays and Treasure Island, you know, all the things that kind of came around in the media from like, you know, 20th century on forward to the 21st century, we take for granted pirates are seen with a certain, for want of a better word, they're lovable or they're, they're not terrifying like like some like saw you know they don't like the village and plunder necessarily they're well they do but they're they've likeable. got a, they've got a likableness <laughs> yeah. yeah they're scoundrels uh -huh. there's like a cuddliness to them it's just sort of been mollified over the years 
and gentrified or whatever, you know, it's been sort of um, all the edges have been sanded off <laughs> and what they truly were and what they truly stood for back in the day in the Spanish Maine and you know in our American culture little kids dress up as pirates with a little patch and a little parrot and I did as a little kid too and they're just sort of likable yeah they're sort of what exactly what Johnny Depp did with Jack Sparrow that's the American version of pirates yeah do they kill yes do they possibly rape yes have they you know, you know but aren't they kind of cute and sweet you know so <laughs> That's the American lens, and that's why Pirates of the Caribbean is so accepted. We relax on the ride, we enjoy it, and of course, there it brings to life. Here they are, all being lovable, and yes, they're shooting at each other, and yes, we know that somewhere in the background we see skeletons. We know that there's death, but we glaze over it, right? We gloss over it, and for them translating it to Paris, where I'm going with the story. I'm so sorry, no. it's taking forever. We're, wait, we're not anywhere close to the mansion right now, but. It was fascinating to sit in these meetings and hear these very adult intellectual conversations about that they, they would have to figure this out if they were going to bring pirates over because to Parisians and to Europe in general, pirates were not lovable. Yeah. Pirates were, you know, the way we might view what, you know, what's, again, I'm saying the villain and saw, you know, someone clearly not at all adorable or likable or lovable. Right. Someone who is um, terrifying. Sure, they're villains. They're yes. Right. Seen as uh, I mean, you know, I don't want to get murderers, into, into political yeah. stuff, but yeah, you know, exactly. Like, go back in, in other European history, you know, people who murdered for the sake of murdering for their own greed. You right. know, that's yeah. more what they, so how do you, you're not going to do an attraction around, you know, Stalin, <laughs> you know? You're going to going to have to really temper it and the phrase that I was handed to figure out why, why it dropped on my desk I don't know but <clears throat> Catherine see if you can find translations or phrases similar to dead men tell no tales and I worked on it for a little bit and then finally went to one of my superiors and said why can't we use such a great phrase I mean you think of that one phrase right and images come up and the, you hear the I hear the music. Of I hear the music. Like, Same here. Yeah, it's like it's it's quaint, right? It's sort of like a welcome to this world. I'm singing it now. Yeah. <laughs> and it's you know, our dead men tell right. Yeah, it's beautiful. And it's sort of romantic and tell you know tales of the past and pirate glory and all of that. In you know translating it uh, into French, it literally trans that phrase literally translates as a dead person can't speak. Oh, that's that's wow. the closest yeah. you could get. And what what the hell does that mean? Yeah, you know? just Dead, yeah, that's right. Dead it's just the phrase. Yeah, it loses any sense of romanticism yeah. or you know the the colloquialism of it completely vanishes. So we were trying to come up with a phrase that somehow meant, and it just didn't. Or you had something that was literally four sentences long mm. to basically get wow. to the fact that you know the romanticism of that feeling. So anyway, yes. Haunted Mansion being the only attraction that has managed to lead to at least four of the parks. And um, and did you know, here's some trivia too. It's the only attraction that um, is in four completely different lands in the different parks. Awesome piece of trivia. Yeah. Interesting. Did you guys know that? I didn't mean? actually. What do you mean? Well, like, here it's of course in New Orleans Square. And, right. And, you know, so that's 
in Paris. It's in their frontier land. Wow. Is there one like in Tomorrowland? What are you saying? <laughs> That's where. <laughs> well, there's okay. So the one in is it Shanghai? Where's the what's what's Mystic Palace? Mystic Manor. Mystic Manor. Yeah, Where's, that one is in their version of Fantasyland. Fantasyland. Fantasy wow, so weird. Right. That was actually going to be part of what I was talking about. That the mansion doesn't directly translate because of their culture. Oh, you're they right. They respect yeah. the dead in a different way That's right. than we do here. They worship so, them as gods. Yeah. Right. So presenting the mansion the way that it's presented here would have been a culture shock that would have mm. been very disrespectful. Very, very yeah. disrespectful. Yeah. yeah. So, here, here, ghosts are you know beings barely hanging on, trying to still hang on to what they you know they're they're like lost souls. Mm-hmm. And in Asian culture, of course, well, Mulan made a big point of this, you know, ancestors and ghosts, they're, you build shrines to them, you worship them, yep. they're not murderous, they're not bad, there's no evil to them, right. you welcome them. And so that's part of what Mr. Minor was. Wow, we have a totally different interpretation of what ghosts are then. Yeah. 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 So, so yeah, so it's literally, and yeah, Mr. Manor's in Fantasyland, and what's the fourth one? The one at Walt Disney World, which is... Uh, no, no, no. Oh, yeah, you know what? You're right. I'm sorry, you're right. Which is in Liberty Square. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. Which is lame. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm always like, and here we are with, you know... You heard it here. The Liberty Bell. No, I, it, it always surprises me. It's like, what is it doing in Liberty Square? I don't understand. Yeah. Well, they don't have a, a New Orleans Square, so I guess it has square in the name. It has square in it. Yeah, just throw it in the square. I'm sorry, I just put a calamari in my mouth. But in a way, <laughs> but I, I think, sh- I hate <laughs> So yeah, the fact that it's in Liberty Square is just kind of, uh, for lack of a better word, boring. But it kind of makes sense because when you think of how he always had that idea in his head that he wanted a haunted house. In everything that he's done, he always had that constant theme of wanting a haunted house in the park. So the fact that it's in Liberty Square, which kind of matches up to a Main Street-ish looking type area, I can kind of understand that. I don't like it. Plain and simple. I think it's more because it just was the closest to what matched up to sort of the geography of you know New Orleans Square being by a body of water, which was integral to the the backstory for it. Yeah, you know? I, I say we move it. <laughs> we got a big empty space we're here. What are we going to put game. here? Yeah. Yeah, going on that. <laughs> For some of the parts that you've worked on, what's been your favorite one so far? Can we just agree that it's Constance? Only because that's what I want to hear. <laughs> <laughs> um, a little bias, my friend. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> I mean, in terms of in terms of what, like in retrospect, that I'm proud of mm-hmm. and proud to be associated with. That's a different answer than what was the coolest to actually physically be doing, you know, the, the experience of recording it. Because you've been a part of some really cool projects. You've worked on attractions, not just Mansion, but Toy Story Mania. You've worked on video games. You've been Princess Leia. Tell us about the process of getting chosen to work on the games and being such an iconic character. Oh, okay. I thought you were talking about specifically Disney Park things. What was my favorite? So, okay. Absolute favorite thing. Well, I mean, experiential-wise, leading up to the final recording for Constance, once I found out that I'd gotten it, that was a pretty exciting um, few days. It was literally just a couple of days between being told that I'd booked it and then going in to record it. Um, pretty fast process. 
Do you remember if you were nervous or anything? Oh my god. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's the understatement. And I've, and I've, sh- I've shared that on, on various podcasts, so I, I hate to be repetitive, but in the hopes that your audience hasn't necessarily heard all of those. Um, absolutely. Hi, welcome. Welcome. Are we all doing all right? We're doing, doing great. Doing great, thank you. Do you need anything? We have a lovely cast member who just walked in to check on our <laughs> on our grub. Uh, we're doing great. Of course. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Andrew. Um, I, I, didn't, I didn't eat or sleep. For the 24 hours leading up to it, wow. I was you so, sound like Hazen when he's worried about something. I was so nervous, and um, uh, it felt. And again, I was, you know, this is 2006, so this is you know, wow. 10 years ago, so much younger. I took it very seriously and felt the weight of the world, you know, that I had to really get this right out of respect for all the other voice talent that it that I'd grown up with and that existed already on the attraction. I, I, you know, looking back on it, it's like adorable, you know, because what I was doing wasn't going to make or break any part of the attraction, <laughs> but it felt very important. You know, a certain group of Imagineers had really trusted me with this, and um, that was a huge honor. And having, knowing that the mansion was one of the reasons that I went into voiceover and having it come full circle like this, it's one of those moments where you just feel like, dang, if I don't get this right, you know, and the ghost of Walt, you know, hanging heavy over my bed that night. I, I just, I didn't sleep. I stayed up and scared the crap out of myself by, by being in the, on the internet, in the dark, reading all of these horrifying tales about brides, you know, various iterations of the brides. Again, it's Is not that, that I, I had already done that research. Was that to get into character? Or? Not in a method... You know, not in a, a Meryl Streep method sort of a way. Actually, I shouldn't. I don't know what Meryl Streep does for her method, but not in a traditional. I'm an actor. No, it was more just. I really need to know what I'm doing. You know, I really need to come prepared. Mm. And since I've been told several times, we're looking for a voice that both is classic and feels like it's part of the classic mansion, and feels like it already existed, didn't just pop up. But let's let's have it be as if she's always been a part of the mansion and that it feels that way but also we'd like it to be contemporary and somewhat fresh and feel relevant to modern you know sensibilities yeah. because unlike seems contradicting actually <clears throat> no like not. if you want something classic you're modern well no but if you think of it from from this point of view we want it to feel like it fits into the classic mansion it's not going to be a jarring you know, yo, hey, what's up? Right. Kind of a attitude. That's a scary but, kind of yeah, not, yeah, thank you for not choosing that voice. Yes. <laughs> so it feels like it's part of it, but also because she's the only character, well, the ghost host actually, but she's she's got attributes that were much more specific. Her storyline is much more specific, right? Mm-hmm. We don't really know the backstory for Madame Leota. Right. There's right. been now fans have created and now comic books and Marvel and now there's all kinds of you know but back in the day all we knew it was a disembodied voice in a crystal ball leading a seance we didn't really know the backstory of the ghost host there were theories there was all kinds of you know but not all that much when and I can name you know off a, a few at Little Leota but there's not that many clear characters in the mansion that speak to you and that have that move right. And her story from the get had a very clear storyline, very fleshed out, very full. 
and I was told a lot of it. Um, some of which I still, you know, I, cause of course I signed NDA, some of it I'll never be able to share. But that that I'm able to share, obviously, fans know it already, you know, her, her, a lot about her backstory, and it's been filled in more and more and more by various folks over the past 10 years. So, in that sense, when they said we want her voice to sound like, because the specs were, she's the voice uh, that she's irresistible to every man. She's, her face is irresistible to every man. Her voice is like a siren song. You just can't stay away, even though your common sense tells you, hey, danger, she's lost four husbands, you know? Don't, don't get married to this one. She somehow manages to always transcend that. So she had to be the face and the voice that no man could resist. And they wanted that in a contemporary way. So. It didn't sound like 1880s or 1860s because that voice would sound different. Yeah, right. Even if you look back at classic beauty from the 1920s, uh, you know, a beautiful woman from the 1920s looks way different from what we consider a supermodel these days. Absolutely. Right? So that's, that's what they meant, was it, it still had to feel like it was part of the universe of the mansion, but also when we say we want it to be appealing, it needs to be appealing to a, a dude going through the mansion today. Um, and also fit the Disney model of being just spooky and scary enough that it fits the mansion, but also a sense of humor. You know, we're, we're really not trying to terrify people. We're trying to entertain them. And even though the occasional tot, myself being one of them, may scream bloody murder and be scared, you know, at what's going on, for most people it's supposed to be an enjoyable, fun experience. Not like Not Scary Farm where the idea is to... Right. Get you to pee in your pants. Or something. <laughs> During that actual, uh, <clears throat> where you actually went and auditioned for this, how much time did they give you to do what? The Constance voice to audition for that. You mean uh, you mean to prep for it? Yes. Oh, um, well, you, you don't get the materials ahead of time. You you have to go in, sign an NDA, and then they hand you the script. So you have as long as you're waiting out in the waiting room. And that's typical of voice. I mean, voiceover, you're not, you're normally not given a lot of time to prep. You're because of our skill set, and I don't know if this is interesting to your people about voiceover. Do you think I do? Actually, I do, yeah. Like, we have a couple of questions that I want to We're amateur voice people anyway. Oh, okay. (laughs) Rock on. So, voiceover, the skill set is. The, the difference between it and on camera is in voiceover, we are expected to be able to tap instantly into emotions on tap and be directable within or away from those emotions in a heartbeat. And we're not expected to memorize. You know, we're, they, you know thankfully you walk in and there's a you know, music stand set up and there's all your copy. Our skill set is to be able to pull the copy off the page instantly without making it sound like we're reading it which takes a lot, I mean, trust me, that took me a lot of practice when I first started 18 years ago. That's, a, that's its own skill set. I just look at something without ever having seen it before and read it fluently without stumbling or gaps or any, you know, um, anything like that. And then also to infuse it with emotions that sound very real to the human ear so that if you're playing a video game, it really sounds like someone's terrified. It really sounds like someone's crying. It really sounds like someone's screaming for their life or calling out orders. And what's interesting is the human ear doesn't lie. It, when you're an on-camera, 
for example, when I was lucky enough to be doing on camera for the three years that I could tolerate <laughs> that culture, the, the reason I pulled out of it, as you guys know, was because it, it just sitting on a set for 20 hours a day not doing very much was, wasn't stimulating enough for me at that time in my, in my life. And I came from theater, so the camera was always a little bit weird. I was like, what's that camera doing here? We're acting. Get it out. Um, but you could be doing an on-camera scene particularly if it was maybe the 10th pickup of that scene from a different angle, and be thinking about something else. Are you supposed to be? Not necessarily, and if you're in tight close-up, you better not be. But I could easily be doing a scene and be thinking about when are we breaking for dinner? Or, ooh, I think we just kicked into golden time. Cool, I'm making twice as you know. <laughs> things go through your head, but you've memorized, you've blocked out, maybe you'll, you know, reconnect with it or maybe you'll just sort of be in that actor place of pulling all the right levers and doing all the right things but you're not necessarily connected to it when you do voiceover you do not have that option I can't for a moment be thinking about something else because between reading it live from the page and knowing that the voice the emotions have to be really authentic to to fool someone like you into thinking oh she's really feeling that you can't disconnect for a second so the skill set of voiceover is very specifically to instantaneous, instantaneously, whatever the direction says, be able to give it. And it's kind of like a painter. You know, I always, when I describe it to new students, you know, that old-fashioned palette with the different paints, you're literally doing that constantly throughout the script, you know, painting it with different emotions and bringing it to life. And then also, then there's the other part of it, which is fascinating, the technical part of it, how then to take directions like, Kat, that was great, just shave off, you know, a second and a half. You know, I was gonna ask you about uh, a recut, like if they ask you something like that. All the time. Yeah. Or they realize that they've over, you know, it happens in commercials a lot, they realize after they hear it with a voice talent doing it professionally as opposed to them reading it to themselves in a, you know, in a room full of writers or whatever, that it's too long. And then they have to start editing and then you're, you know, rewriting all over your page, all the different cuts and edits, and it, it can, I mean, it can look like a crazy, crazy map from Wonderland by the time I'm done with all the arrows and happy faces and slashes, and it's, um, that's its own skill set, you know, how to be able to quickly adapt and adjust. And Have you ever, uh, on, uh, on a line, you gave everything you had? Were you ever, like, disrespected that, hey, you know what, Kat, let's do that again? even though you felt like you poured everything into your line? Well, there's the politically correct answer. <laughs> I mean... Which one are we getting? <laughs> our job, what we're getting paid to do is take direction. Mm -hmm. I didn't create it. I'm not the writer. I'm not the director. I'm not the creative director. I'm not the art director. It's their project. I'm the lucky son of a gun who got to be a voice talent for it. And I try really hard all the time to stay in that space, mm -hmm. you know, that attitude of gratitude, because there's a bazillion talented gals out there who could easily be doing that job too. And I never forget that. So, you know, in, in voiceover, you're hearing a voice, so there's not as much of the association as to who's doing it, unless it's, you know, a Pixar or Disney animated, you know, where they... So I saw billboards, you know, the other day with uh, Anna Kendrick, you know, trolls. It's like, 
it's that, it's about her name. It's yeah. not you know. And of course, back in the day for Walt's movies, you would never see that. Mm-hmm. It wasn't Phil Harris and the Aristo. It was Walt Disney's Aristo. So um, it, it, that's changed a lot. But um, for the most part, they're hiring a voice and a, a voice talent and. If they give me a direction, that's totally their prerogative. That's what they should be doing. And um, my job is to take that direction as best and as quickly and as quietly as possible. So if I give a great take, I may personally be like inside going, yeah, yeah, yeah girl, <laughs> you know, way to nail it. Yeah. But truthfully, um, there's... They, they may have something totally else in mind and they know what the storyboards are they know what the final product has to be they know their clients if we're talking about a McDonald's commercial they know what's going to sell I don't do that for a living I'm not working for an ad agency so I may think I nailed it but I have to defer to them always makes sense and the only time it gets you know tr- occasionally can get frustrating is if you're on to like take 55 of the same line uh-huh. and you feel like they've said several times that's it that's it let's just get one more for safety <laughs> you know and and that's usually that's usually a result of newer people yeah. who just you know they've got to answer to someone and they want to make sure that they've got absolutely covered every every possible way just in case because they don't yet quite have the experience to know how it's all going to lay out and that's okay. We all have learning curves. Are you sure they're not just trying to reach overtime? No. <laughs> oh, no. They're, are you kidding? They want under budget. Oh, really? Okay. They, you do not want to go overtime on a student. No. So let me ask you this then. With a lot of actors, they go out and they develop the skill sets that they use on camera by joining things like groundlings and stuff like that where they go out improv. and they put on uh, improv. How do you develop the voiceover side? Like, what types of exercises do you go through in order to develop the talents that you were talking about? Well, people can come from voiceover from from many different, you know, sides. Um, And there's different different fields within voiceover, too. So, um, you know, uh, it's so funny. My head's going, you've already said this eight times this week. But, of course, this is fresh. And, and, and I, you know, I love sharing it because it's fascinating. It's why I got into it. There's, there's three main tiers to voiceover, three main categories. One is um, what we would call promo announce, which is all the voices you hear coming up next on NBC, you know, next on the CW, da, da, da. Um, the, that was good, by the way. We'll take that take. <laughs> <laughs> um, so those are promos on television or on radio telling you what's coming up. You know when when to look for it, all of that. <clears throat> That's also the same category that is uh, trailers, movie trailer voices, the voice of God that you hear on you know TV or in the movie theaters narrating a trailer, and they're called narrators in that world. Um, interestingly enough, and that's a very specific field. Then there's animation and character work, which of course covers everything, toys, uh, all you know, web interactive products video games, cartoons, all of that. Anything where it's it's a more um, charactery voice, not just your everyday voice, and it's specifically for those more animated things. Um, and then there's commercial slash retail, which is just straightforward commercials that you hear on radio and TV. So within those three categories, there's people who specialize in those specific categories and tend to you know stay within those, and then there's people who 
cross over into all of them. Um, I am very, very blessed that at this point I'm, I've crossed over into all of them and I'm doing all of them. But people can come from specific other fields. Wow. I'm like hearing it now. Yeah. 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 We got some haunted mansion weather going, y'all. Yeah, that's right. It's going to start thundering. So, so people can come, for example, from radio and have, having been radio DJs or working in the radio world and they can cross over and maybe they'll have luck breaking into the promo trailer world because that's more, that's the straightforward translation of a, a radio DJ, you know, sort of the promo trailer thing. Right. More straightforwardly. And then people who come from acting and improv may end up in the um, more character you know, the animated side. Particularly if you've got a strong background in improv, you're going to do great at animation auditions and video games, being able to do several different dialects and all of that. And then you've got people who are also actors, or maybe they just had, they naturally were born with great, you know, what we call great, those great voices, those people that their whole lives they've, you know, heard, wow, have you ever thought about being a voiceover because their voices are scratchy or textured or deep or, you know, whatnot, both for gals and guys. Um, and those people have an easier time just crossing right into commercial retail because that textury voice is, you know, so, so coveted in a lot of those. But truthfully, if you're going to make a living at voiceover, and it's it's not just it's sort of that arrogant, hey, I'd be great at this. Uh-huh. You know, let's see what I luck out at. But wow, this is a craft I really respect and really want to do for a living. You have to be an actor first and foremost. Except for in the promo trailer world, not that some of those people aren't incredibly talented. And again, there's some people like me who've crossed over into the various, you know, um, Tom Kane and a number of uh, others, Corey Burton, who of course are tremendous animation talents, but also do trailers and promos. Um, but for the most part, those, what we affectionately call the voice of God, you know, voices that you hear in a movie trailer, those people tend to not be so much actors as they are great narrators, great voices, and great voiceover talent. Um, and if you're going to do all three of them, particularly animation, you have to come from acting. You have to have that in your background because that's what you're doing. Your emotions have to be malleable and present and you have to be able to do several of them. And usually, especially on video games, they get under a SAG contract, three roles out of you, technically. <laughs> so when you get hired, they can ask you for up to three totally different voices. You have to be able to sound completely different. It can't sound like, well, we hired you to play Alita, and now we need you to do a 12-year-old little girl, and you sound exactly like Alita. You know, you have to be able to sound different. So how do you prep for that? Is it, do you spend like a weekend, eight hours a day, just uh, building your range and just working on different characters? Uh, I hope I'm answering your question correctly. If someone just has the thought one day, gee, I'd love to go into voiceover, or I've always loved doing funny voices by myself or entertaining my friends, I'd love to go into voiceover, the first thing they have to make sure that they're doing, if in fact what they're thinking they want to do is animation, video games, commercials, you know, all of it, then they have to be actors. I mean, you have to go into acting classes, is what I'm saying. Ah, okay. You you have to have training. Um, Unless you just happen to naturally be brilliant at it, which, you know, I suppose, but even, you know, even Robin Williams, when he made the decision in his career to transition from when he was getting 
offers were decided at that point when he was in, none of us were around for it, I'm sure, but at that point in the, would it have been the late 70s, early, wasn't Buddies, or that Tom Hanks? That was Tom Hanks, right? <laughs> no, Robin was, Robin was first breakthrough was on Happy Days with a cameo appearance, or you know, as, guest star role as Mark. As Mark on Happy Days, Mark. right. Sort of doing that paranoid 1950s sci-fi thing. And I'm sure it was seated as a pilot. That character was too bizarre and unique to not have been. Someone must Came have Came out been, of nowhere. Yeah. But I'm sure at that point, that must have been at a point in Robin Williams' career where he was having so much success as a stand-up comedian that he was getting offers in Hollywood. And I'm sure he would have been intelligent enough and his management would have said, take some acting classes. You know, on camera is very different from stand-up. You need to learn that. Um, Tom Hanks certainly did when he transitioned from stand-up in New York and New Jersey into, you know, going out for TV commercials and, and pilots. And, I mean, everybody does if they're t- taking it seriously. You have to learn those skill sets and how to, how to access your emotions realistically, authentically, on the spot. Um, you, shouldn't, you shouldn't technically need hours to build up to an emotion if you're a trained actor, just like if you're an athlete. You know, it, you do want to warm up a little bit, but of course they don't need hours and hours and hours. They've, they've already invested their muscle memory with that. Am I making sense? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So if you want to go into voiceover, the first thing I would say is definitely acting classes, definitely improv classes. And um, the technical aspect of it, you know, just the speaking of it, I always say start pulling out anything and everything and start reading it out loud by yourself so that it's smooth, so that it's fluent, so that you can get through entire sentences without any stumbles. And so it sounds like, I mean, the goal is to sound like you're not reading. You're literally just speaking, conversing with somebody. So uh, this next one is is kind of a two-part question. Okay. Outside of the Disney community, who is your inspiration for voiceover? And same question, but inside of the Disney community. Who is my inspiration outside of this evening in voiceover? Yeah, like who do you look up to? Like who, whose voice do you really admire? Because uh, all these traits that you're talking about, uh, they're very specific skill sets. Like whose voice do you listen to and instantly just feel that connection? They just did all of these things for me. Well, there's so, I mean, when I got into it, there were so many of them and I didn't necessarily know the names attached to them. Okay. You know, they were just these fa- fantastic voices that I aspired to be like. I I didn't go into, this is weird, but I didn't go into voiceover with any aspiration towards animation. I didn't think, I because I wasn't that type of personality, nor was I that kind of fan. I mean, I love the Disney classics, um, but I can't. My orientation to Disney, first and foremost, for those who know that I say that Disneyland was my inspiration, you know, it was the parks and the voices that you hear in the parks. And to me, those weren't animation voices. Those were great, great um, radio voices, theatrical voices, narrative voices, voices you could listen to for hours telling. They were storytellers, right? right. All of them. And... Um, yes, they did some character work within that, but they were just great storytellers. And listening to the Disney records growing up, you know, the little tiny 78s and, you know, acting them out in my room, every single character, it was the storytelling of it. And, you know, I loved the voice of the, you know, 
when when Tinkerbell rings her bell, turn the page, you know. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, you know, all those records with Marty Nixon on them, and all, I just loved, loved, loved all of those. So again, storytelling narration. So as I eased into voiceover, the voices I admired were the commercial retail voices, the warm, friendly, makes you want to go out and buy Kellogg's cereal or Pop-Tarts or McDonald's. Loved those voices. They were so warm and rich and, you know, yummy. And I also really admired um, all of the storytelling narrative promo trailer voices. It's weird to me that my very first huge sort of, you know, mini success or what, you know, break was an animation voice. And of course, for those who know, that's, I was, I was voice matching the, the girl from the pilot. So in a certain sense, what I thought I was really focusing on was getting the voice match right, which I'd always loved doing, imitating the Disney princesses and all the different character voices. Um, celebrity voice matching was something I had always loved doing. Uh, not so much impersonations, but, but really matching the voice. So I'm glad you brought that up. Okay. Uh, can you tell us the difference of, of an impersonation versus what you're trying to accomplish with voiceover? Yes. With voice matching, you mean? Yeah, with voice matching. Yeah, and it's a, it's a great question. So an impersonation is, and that's why it's so prevalent with stand-up comedians, an impersonation is where you're doing enough attributes, taking on enough of the qualities of a famous person's voice and face and mannerisms that someone will instantly get who you're trying to be and you're, buffoon, you're making fun of it. You're blowing it up to the point where you're going to get a laugh out of it. Mm. That's always... The, the real point of an impersonation is to get a laugh, entertain, you know, Saturday Night Live. We can right. all agree, okay, that doesn't exactly look like Hillary Clinton, but man, she totally nails the ism of it. And even more so, it's, it's, it's heightened and exaggerated to get the laugh. In voice matching, it's almost, in many ways, the complete opposite. You're not supposed to notice. You're not supposed to know it's, that it's happening. It's supposed to be a, uh, an audial illusion or an aural illusion, um, just like a you know a visual uh, illusion. You're supposed to really think that's the person. Therefore, it's subtle. It's um, very low key and real. And um, you're not supposed to be calling any attention to the fact that there's a match going on. You're either supposed to think it's the original celebrity doing it. Well, you're supposed to think it's the original person, you know, character, what, you know, Toy Story or whatever Disney property. You're supposed to believe it's that actual original character. Um, and for more subtle uses of voice matching, like ADRing for movies or television, um, looping ADR is that process in post-production where they make sure all of the dialogue is seamless and whatever was recorded matches, you know, perfectly on film. We often go in as voice matchers to replace bits and pieces of the dialogue that have either been rewritten since the original, you know, filming, or weren't clean enough, and they couldn't get the actual actor back in the studio because they're already on to their next thirty projects. So I shouldn't so. say, "Hey, that sounds like Ken Crescent." <laughs> <laughs> That's happening. Someone, someone should be fired, and not just me. <laughs> Uh, I can yeah, imagine doing ADR work is intense because every single syllable that comes out of your mouth has to directly match the movement of what you're watching on screen. 
Dubbing it as well, yeah, to picture. Oh, dubbing, yeah, mm-hmm. but that's tough. Yeah, which is a whole different part of ADRing, but can go hand in hand with it. So, so yeah, that, that those are the primary differences. And um, I'm not naturally, uh, I'm not naturally entertainment-wise funny. I don't, you know, I'm not, I don't come into a room and a million things come out of me, and I'm definitely not of that heightened animation energy. Um, my humor is much more sort of sarcastic, wry, quiet, you know, in the cut, <laughs> um, subtle. So, uh, yeah, to me, it's it's still bananas that Dee Dee became, like of all animation characters, that Dee Dee was the one that I sort of broke with and that uh, I became known with from the get because she's the complete opposite of me in so it, many ways. It's, it's uh, <laughs> interesting to me how you were telling us a while ago that there's just like all these little different uh, sections that yeah. you can take voiceover work into. It just goes to show just the amazing range you have with everything you do like I started studying all the work that you had there oh in the God, past you go back to <laughs> oh he's obsessed with it and seriously like I, I go through all your history and I see all these games that I've played and I'm like oh my gosh it was this voice and then I go and I look at the cartoons I was like oh my gosh it was the voice for this I go to the attractions but again like you said it's all different categories of things you do voiceover work like, honestly your range is amazing like you just can't tell that it was like you that was doing these things I mean, it, it's a true testament to like the work that she does like it's fantastic Thank you. That's really, that's really lovely. <laughs> I had a follow-up question and Gavin threw me off. I started looking at him. Oh well, he was saying how amazing I am. So, because of all these uh, characters that you've done, which one do you think has been the most challenging for you to accomplish because of the range that you have to hit with that character? Like, which one stretched your voice so far that you just came home thinking, this is going to hurt for a week. Well, I mean, for sure, uh, being lucky enough to do some of the matching for Jessie the Cowgirl, because that's she's uh, she's an amazing, astonishing character actress, Joan. Mm-hmm. And she brings so many unique, unique qualities to everything. You know, she's got this great, quirky, hilarious, sarcastic sense of humor. And she's so bright um, as an actress. She's just so, so sharp. And so she's doing little isms all along the way that, that she, she's got such smarts about her that she can veer left with a voice or go somewhere with a joke. And that comes from all her incredible improv skills. I mean, she of course was doing improv for years um, in Chicago before she was doing uh, film and television and, um, and stage. You know, so she she's really a tremendous actress, and so you know she did Jessie, and it's a great voice because of course she's got all the great isms that make the voice, and and we call that a, you know the mask that she speaks through what what's going on with her face, but also her what she's doing with the character and with the reading the line readings is brilliant. So you put those two things together and you better hold on for dear life. You know? and, and she's also um, hardly ever quiet. You know, that character is almost always very explosive yeah, very, very loud. <laughs> and a lot of yeehaws and yeah. a lot of, you know, so excited and exuberant about everything. So I always know going into a session like that, I've got to be really warmed up, really prepared, really in the voice. And I'm probably going to be exhausted 
you know, unless it's only a five minutes, I'm probably going to be really exhausted. That's not, you know, to sound like, oh man, pat myself on the back. That's just the character is really, you know, a heck of a ride. But truthfully, every week I get challenged by different, uh, every week I'm learning something about someone's voice, um, doing, getting thrown as much voice matching. It's always fascinating to climb inside that person's lens for a moment inside their mask. There was one week where we were, um, literally within a day, we had to turn over all the voice matches for all the gals in the new Ghostbusters. All four wow. of them. And um, I, didn't, I didn't try and tackle, you know, the awesome Leslie, what's her last name? Jones. Yeah, I, I didn't try and do her because she's, oh my God, she's got a voice, you know. But um, you can't really fake or, you know, match that voice. You've either got that voice or you don't. But for the other three gals, Kristen Wiig and, you know, um, uh, uh, why am I blanking on, who's my favorite comedic actress? Melissa. Thank you, yeah. Melissa McCarthy. <laughs> and, um, and the other awesome one who just won the Emmy for Saturday Night Live, who's doing Hillary. All, all three, yeah, look it up, Google it. Thank you. And her. Um, so we had to do that literally within a day. And they all sound very different and they all have different personalities. So climbing inside of each one of them and you know trying to nail that, that really stretched me out bit. Did you have to do all three or did you get picked one for you? I auditioned for all three. All three, oh, okay. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. And I, and I wound up doing each one of the three for various movie trailers, oh. you know, line here and line there. But for some reason that, you know, there was a week when I think it was right before the movie kicked off that this was all happening. Mm. They were looking all over town for these voice matches. <laughs> all right. Well, I think we're going to start to wrap it up here. We want to be respectful of Kat's time. Thank you. <gasps> Thank so you. Much. And, uh, obviously, the room. So, <laughs> the amazing room here yes. in Utah. Oh, it's beautiful. Yeah. Kat, thank you so much thank you. for spending some more time with us and teaching a little bit uh, about what voiceover is like and some of the things that you do, how you prepare. If there's anything that you can leave our listeners with that might be interested uh, in doing voiceover, aside from really getting their acting chops uh, up to par, what what else would you recommend for them? Well, if if they're think if you're thinking of taking it seriously again, you know, and it's not just going to be, gee, I think I can do that because I love talking, you know, or love the sound of my own voice because it, it's. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I hate the sound of my own voice. Um, Let's just get that straight. <laughs> But to take it seriously as a craft, it would be the way any other craft. If you're going to be an artist, unless you are naturally born with such a gift that you've been able to, you know, to draw without any coaching or classes whatsoever, and there are some natural talents like that in every field, of course. But you know, even athletes, even if they're naturally athletic as kid as a kid and have a great eye and a great arm or whatnot, they're going to train, you know, to learn that specific skill and the rules that support that specific skill. There's a lot of technique and skill about a microphone that one has to learn. It took me at least three years to learn the depths and the all the different range in my own voice, you know, and, and that's not even true. Probably took me 10 years to learn the full range of my voice, but it took three years to get somewhat adept at just picking up a script and going. That's a long time, you know, and, and I came from acting. But it's such a different skill set from acting where it's almost the reverse. Memorize it, build a whole character, come in completely prepared. You know, you walk into the room already completely 
ready to go, and then you have the nerve-wracking part of on-camera where now you've got to reproduce it for all the people auditioning you. In voiceover, you walk in cold, and you're expected to just pull it out on the spot, not be memorized, not come with preconceived notions, and be completely malleable so that the directors and producers can take you wherever they need to take you within the one-hour session and get whatever they need out of you within the right time and all that. So I would say workshops, classes, specific voiceover workshops, which of course in SoCal there's fortunately a ton, um, in, in other regions too, you know, Dallas and Chicago and SIA. There's voiceover workshops in a lot of the major metropolises. Make sure you're taking it with a top casting person or someone who actually does it, you know, for, for a living. And acting and improv are tremendous skill sets to bring with it. And then if you're serious about it, dedicate half an hour a day 15 minutes a day to picking up the phone book, pick, pick, picking up a magazine, anything not a script, and pull those words off the page and just get used to saying things out loud quickly, succinctly, um, without stumbling. Which takes a, I mean, that takes a tremendous amount of practice. I'm still learning that skill set myself. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, that is a skill set. And watch and listen. I mean, I did so much, so much copying and stealing and blatantly parroting of all of the greats just to learn, you know, just to learn it and get it. And um, again, I didn't know the names attached to all these great voices I was hearing. Um, and the internet, when I got into it, didn't exist. I couldn't just Google it. And it didn't, it didn't exist, credits didn't exist for voiceover the way that they did, except for on animated shows, but for commercials. I didn't know who was doing. It turns out it was April Winchell that was doing a lot of the amazing voice work. Who coincidentally was the daughter of Paul Winchell, Tigger. Oh, really? She was a very famous. Uh, she was a very established copywriter for commercials, and and produced and wrote commercials, and then went into voiceover. She had a great sarcastic, awesome delivery. Um, that when I was coming into voiceover in the um, mid to late 90s, she was on a ton of campaigns and brilliant. Um, and interestingly enough, Jane Lynch was doing a ton of voiceover when I first got into it. I just did a Facebook post on that. Um, Jane Lynch, who now, you know, of course, is famous for Her Glee. Her big role was Glee. Glee you know, yeah. Now she's on another, but she's phenomenally gifted voiceover talent. Um, so yeah, you just listen and mimic. I always, if I'm watching television, I always am mimicking back the, the deliveries that I hear. Because there's always new great voices and there's always something to learn from, you know, oh wow, she threw that away so beautifully. Like, like she, she hadn't a care in the world. I'm, I'm kind of, I'm still learning that one skill set of how to deliver a line without any, you know, it just sounds so natural and casual as if you're, you know. But there's a skill to it because it can't sound boring or flat. But it still has to sound like, you know, you know, craft cheese, just because, you know. It takes, <laughs> it takes like a lot for me to not get into a character with that or deliver too much emotion with it. So there's always more to learn, and that's what I would say is, if you're gonna do it, you gotta do it. There's no thinking about it because you're gonna be needing to use these muscles, you know, and this muscle. I'm pointing to my nugget, and this muscle. I'm pointing to my heart. Uh, a lot, twenty four seven. All right, beautiful. It's very awesome cool way to end this. Once cool. again, Kat, thank you so very much. Boom. Really appreciate Always it. Always a pleasure, Kat. Boom.
purpose are you? We are going to clear out the rest of this food so we can go play in the rain. So until next Sing in the rain. Here is the beers, cheers, and make ears. Have a fantastic week, everybody. Happy Halloween! Take care, y'all. See ya.